The following audio is from Potomac Heights Baptist Church, located in Indian Head, Maryland. More information about Potomac Heights Baptist Church is available at www.phbc.com. Potomac Heights Baptist Church exists to glorify God and to make Christ known to the ends of the world by helping one another become more like Jesus. It is our hope that you will prayerfully listen to this sermon audio. Have you ever thought about the English word love? It's a rather elastic word, isn't it? We use it for all types of things. For example, we we might say to our spouse, I love you. Or we might look out at the beautiful snow outside and say, I love a beautiful snowfall or I love seeing a sunrise or a sunset. And then later that afternoon, we watching the big game on TV and you say, you know, I love nachos or I love hot dogs, right? Now, surely we don't mean the same thing by the use of love in all of those situations. Uh, you know, gentlemen, if you mean when you say you love your wife, if you mean the same thing as I love hot dogs, if, if, that's, if it's the same thing coming out of your mouth, I just want you to know I'm available for marital counseling. You can call me, send me an email, do it sooner rather than later because you need help, right? Uh, what do we mean when we use that word love? How, how, how might we even define love? Because for the Christian, our highest calling in the world is to love. Jesus tells us in, uh, in, in the Gospel, He tells us in John's Gospel, that the world will know that we are disciples in how we love one another. And so more specifically, instead of just love in general, we might ask, what does Christian love look like? And how can I know if I'm loving someone well in a Christian sense? Well, that's what our text is all about today. And so without any further ado, we're going to look in Romans 12. So if you're there, say amen. All right. Twelve of you are there, and that's good enough for me. Let's get started. Uh, Romans 12, beginning of verse 9, Paul says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needy, excuse me, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, thus says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word. Your word that is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And we pray now, Lord Jesus, that you would use our time together 
to help us understand your word and to apply it well into our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you're a note taker, here's the central idea for today. Genuine love is the identifying mark of true Christianity. Genuine love is the identifying mark of true Christianity. Paul starts off this passage by saying, let love be genuine. There in verse 9, let love be genuine. I believe what he's doing for the rest of this passage is he's unpacking what genuine Christian love looks like. So, what does genuine Christian love look like? The latter half of verse 9 all the way through verse 21 answers that question, what genuine Christian love looks like. And to that end, I have for you this morning 20 points. No, I'm not pulling your chain. I genuinely have 20 points. But they're all going to be brief, okay? So we will get out of here in time for lunch, I promise. Uh, so you'll be like two, point, two minutes or less on every point. So we're going to dive right in with these 20 points. And you'll see why I have so many points. The text just really demands that. Point number one, choose good over evil. Verse 9, Paul tells us to abhor what is evil and to hold fast to what is good. Uh, when my children were little and they were growing up, uh, you, you, there were some words in your house you said, these are no-no words, and I'm not just talking about like curse words, but I'm just, just there were some words, and one of those words was hate. And I, I would tell my children that hate is a, a very strong word, and you ought to be careful, you know, you, you know, a child in a tantrum might say, well, I hate you, or something like that, and you say, be careful about using that type of language. Well, the ESV translates that here in verse 9 as that we are to abhor what is evil. But that word abhor, it's even stronger than hate. I know if you read from an NIV, it says that we're to hate what is evil, but, but hating evil doesn't go nearly far enough. As Christians, we need to abhor it. In my prayer here earlier in the service, we prayed for those FBI agents that were gunned down earlier this week as they were seeking to serve a warrant. My understanding was of that situation from what I got on the news is it wasn't an arrest warrant. They were simply wanting to seize uh, the man's property, particularly his computer, because uh, that man was trafficking in child pornography. Now, I bring up those details because I, I hope that we could all agree that this is an evil that we hate. Uh, child pornography is an evil that we can abhor. And when, when we think about something like that, when we think about child pornography, I hope it brings, delivers this like visceral in-your-gut reaction. That I hope it makes you want to puke. That's what it makes me want to do, okay? But what Paul's saying here, here's my point, what Paul's saying here in this verse is that all types of evil ought to make us want to throw up. That we ought to hate it that much. All types of evil. That's what love demands. Love demands that we abhor what is evil. But the flip side of that coin is then that love demands that we hold fast to what is good. And so let me conclude this first point by just quoting a scripture. It's probably a, a well-known scripture to many of you. This is Philippians chapter 4. Verse 8, when Paul says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence in anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And so if we want to love well, we need to set our minds on those things that are good. We need to hold fast to what is good. That's point number one. Point number two is we pursue brotherly affection with each other. Verse 10 begins with love one another with brotherly affection. The context here is clearly within the body of Christ. And this word translated love, it it's denotes a warm familial type of love. 
It's the type of love that I I would hope would be expressed in all of our families. But as we read the New Testament, and as we read what Jesus had to say, is what Paul wrote to us, there's no doubt that the love that we're called to express toward one another in the body of Christ is actually a stronger type of love than we're supposed to express even to our own blood kin. And so let's try this little exercise. If you're a member of this church, or maybe soon to become a member of this church, I want you right now to think of another person who's also a member of this church. And that person just rubs you the wrong way. Now, some of you might be thinking of me. Fair enough. You might be thinking of someone else. If you're not thinking of anyone, let me just suggest that you're not, you're either, you're not trying hard enough or maybe you haven't been a member long enough uh, because, listen, we're all sinners. We're all, so let's be honest, but we're all sinners. And, and eventually, if you've been around people long enough, we'll, we'll rub people the wrong way. All of us do that. So you got this idea, you got this individual in your mind. Remember this. You've been called to love that person with brotherly affection. A warm, tender, tender-hearted affection. In other words, you're not just supposed to put up with that person. You're to love that person. You might think, well, Pastor, I just can't, I can't do that. I, I have too much history with that person. There's too much bad blood. To which I respond to you, you're right. I know you can't do it. Not on your own power, but if you're a Christian, you have the power of the Holy Spirit living within you. And through that power, you can do it. And so genuine love is loving with brotherly affection. Point number three, show honor. The latter half of verse 10 tells us to outdo one another in showing honor. Now, he's not suggesting that we get into some kind of contest and say, hey, I can show honor better than you. That's not what the outdo is is getting at here. But rather, this is kind of reflective of what a passage I quoted from last week. I quoted from Philippians chapter 2 last week. And in verse 3 of that passage, we're told, in humility to value others above ourselves. Genuine Christian love, by its very nature, is characterized by humility. By valuing others as more important than yourselves. And so when you show up to a dinner party, are you the first one to grab a plate and get in line? Or do you show honor and defer to others that they might come first? Because when we defer, we're showing honor. We show that we're not thinking about ourselves first. We're thinking about others first. We're practicing humility. And genuine Christian love thinks about others before it thinks about oneself. Point number four. Don't be lazy. Don't be lazy. I love how the first part of verse 11 it says, Don't, Do not be slothful in zeal. When I first read that earlier in the week, I kind of chuckled to myself and I thought, how can a person be lazy and zealous at the same time? It seems like that's a, how how does that happen, right? But as I thought about it more, it began to make sense. Let Let me illustrate. Let's say you're zealous. Or you're passionate about feeding the hungry. That, you know, that's a cause that you, that you are passionate about. And that's a good cause to be passionate about. What Paul's saying is, don't be lazy or don't be slothful then in your care for the hungry. Now, how might that happen? Well, that word slothful or lazy, it carries with it the idea of inactivity or slackness. And so to use my illustration further, the per- if you're slothful in caring for the hungry, that would be the person who just sits around in their house waiting for someday the, the knock on the door from the hungry person saying, hey, can you, can you give me something to eat? I mean, can you picture that? Just, oh, I'm really passionate about the poor or about the hungry. I want, I want to feed the hungry. Well, what are you doing about it? Well, they, nobody's knocked on my door yet. 
Well, you're just being lazy, right? Why don't you go down and volunteer at the local food pantry, at the food bank? Or call the food bank and say, what items are you lacking? Can, can, when I go to the grocery store next time, I'm going to buy some of those items so that I can help you out. Here's the point. We don't just sit back and wait for ministry to show up on our doorstep. That's laziness. We go out and find ministry opportunities. And so genuine Christian love is going to seek opportunities to serve others. We're not slothful in our zeal. Point number five. Burn in your spirit by the power of the Spirit. Let me explain that point. Paul says here simply in verse 11 to be fervent in spirit. There's some debate about whether that spirit, my, my translation has, has a lowercase s and then it has a footnote and in the footnote has an uppercase s. So is that talking about like in our personal spirit that we're to be fervent in our personal spirit? Or is that saying being fervent in the Holy Spirit? Well, I don't think you can be fervent in your spirit unless you have the power of the Holy Spirit to help you do that. Hence the name of the point, burn in your spirit by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so what does that mean then, though, to, to be fervent in spirit? This is closely related to the previous point where we're called to be zealous, that we're called away from laziness. Fervency is the counterpart to laziness. You know, some of you perhaps have heard the phrase, the frozen chosen. It has nothing to do with the weather outside. It's the idea of being communicated. That you're so convinced that you're a part of God's elect that you just, well, I don't need to do anything. I'm going to just sit down and I'm not going to do anything. You're the frozen chosen. You know, picture in your mind, the frozen, picture in your mind, Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh, right? Who's always pessimistic and always gloomy and depressed. Well, that's not how we should strive for our Christian lives. To be fervent is to be enthusiastic, it's to be excited. Think Tigger instead of Eeyore, right? You know, bouncing is what Tiggers do best. That is, that's what it means to be excited or to be fervent. It's the type of fervency and spirit that we ought to have. It's, it's a fervency and spirit that communicates love by saying we are enthusiastic about serving Christ. Point number six. Verse 11, we serve the Lord. It's the final command of verse 11. It fits nicely after that previous command. So we're to be, in other words, to be fervent in the spirit as we're serving the Lord. Last week, in Romans 12, verses 3 through 8, we looked at some of the spiritual gifts that the Lord has given to His people. Those gifts are given to us so that we might serve Him. That's why we have gifts. And so we prophesy, we teach, we contribute, we perform acts of mercy, all in an effort to serve the Lord. Well, genuine Christian love is going to be seen in our service to the Lord. Point number seven. Keep an eye on the hope that is within you. Keep an eye on the hope that is within you. In verse 12, Paul tells us to rejoice in hope. I want to take us back a few chapters, if you would. Just turn back uh, just a few pages to chapter 5 in Romans. And uh, I'll begin with verse 1. Paul writes this in Romans 5. He says, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him... We have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts 
through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. Well, back to, back to the main passage in verse 12. Beloved, do you, do you see the central role that hope plays within the Christian life? All of our trials in this life, when we faithful, faithfully weather those trials, they all ultimately produce hope in our lives. So you might even say that after this past year, after 2020, I mean, we should be some of the most hopeful people in the world, right? I mean, 2020 was a trying year. And so after 2020, we, we can hope in the sure and certain belief that Jesus is going to rescue His people. We don't have to worry about wearing a mask in heaven. We don't have to worry about politics in heaven. We don't have to worry about injustice in heaven. We have this hope. And we can rejoice in that hope. And we show that our, Christ, that our love is genuinely Christian when we have this hope. Because we're not hoping that the next election is going to make everything better. We're not hoping that a vaccine, although we're glad for the vaccine, we're not hoping that the vaccine is all of a sudden going to make everything better. We're genuinely hoping in Christ. And so we rejoice in that hope. Keep an eye on that hope. Number eight, we endure trials. Also in verse 12, we're told to be patient in tribulation. Now, let, let's be straight with one another, right? No, nobody likes to be told to be patient when they're in the midst of tribulation. Uh, we want our trials over just as soon as possible, thank you very much, right? The Spanish flu pandemic from the last century, it lasted three years. We're less than one year into the COVID pandemic, and we're already, myself included, we're already growing weary, Right? It's been nearly 160 years since President Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation, and our country is still faced with racial injustice and racial unrest. And I can assure you that no one who is experiencing that type of injustice wants to be told to be patient in their trials. But that's what genuine Christian love looks like. Genuine Christian love doesn't, we don't throw up our hands and say, well, you know, these trials are never going to end, and so I'm just gotta, I just have to get used to it. Genuine Christian love recognizes that even through these trials, God is at work in our lives to make us more and more like Jesus. In other words, genuine Christian love looks beyond the here and now, the, the difficulty that we're in right now. He looks beyond that and sees what God is doing to shape us and mold us to be like Jesus. Genuine Christian love is not, not happy with, that we live in a fallen world with tribulation. And genuine Christian love will work to overcome tribulation. But we'll also recognize that the tribulation itself is not ultimate. God is ultimate. And so we keep our eyes fixed on God as we endure trials. Number nine. Reject prayerlessness. Paul tells us there to be constant in prayer. So we're to reject prayerlessness. Prayerlessness, brothers and sisters, prayerlessness is a sin. And it's a sin that we all too easily fall into. Because prayer is central to the Christian life. But prayer doesn't just happen. At least it doesn't just naturally happen, right? Prayer, prayer goes against actually the grain of who we are. We, we generally think of ourselves as you know, independent people, especially true in Western societies like the United States. You know, we believe in the good old-fashioned American work ethic. If you just work hard enough, you can be whatever you want to be. Of course, there, there is a measure of truth to that, to be fair. 
there's even a measure of biblical truth to that. The Bible does call us forth to a strong work ethic. But the Bible is also clear that we are not the masters of our own fate. We do well to remember that we are creatures. We are not the Creator. We're creatures. There's only one Creator. We call Him God. But the Creator has given us this awe-inspiring privilege of communing with Him in prayer. And so we deliberately set our minds to prayer. And we need to be constant in our prayer. Point number 10. We help those in need by giving generously. Verse 13 tells us to contribute to the needs of the saints. Now, we shouldn't read this, by the way, to say that we're not supposed to give to non-Christians. But what Paul has, what he's stressing here, and this is the importance of giving within the body of Christ. This was one of the defining marks of the early church. In Acts 2, we read that they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any who had need. It's a very practical mark of Christian community. At the end of our service today, after we celebrate the Lord's Supper, one of our deacons will be standing in the back with a little blue bag. And the money we put in that bag will be used for our benevolence fund. And then our deacons use that money and they administer that fund to help out families in need. And they start with what's happening within the body of Christ, but they also look outside the body of Christ. And so when you give generously to that fund, you're helping to contribute to the needs of the saints. Some of you might do that on a more direct basis. You might know a family who's struggling financially, and so from time to time, you slip them a little envelope with, with some money, and, that, and that's fine to do. I know when, when I was a seminary student, on more than one occasion, uh, the generosity of other Christians giving money to help pay for rent or food or diapers or whatever the case might have been uh, saved, uh, saved us. Not, not in, a, uh, like in an ultimate sense saved, but I mean just... We, we were like at the last cents in our checking account and people would do that. So this is a very tangible way to express genuine Christian love. I think we're already halfway through. That's 10. Point number 11. Open your doors or open your door to the stranger. Again, closely related to that previous point in the latter half of verse 13, Paul tells us now to seek to show hospitality. Seek to show hospitality. The Greek word that's, that we have translated hospitality is, is actually a compound word in the Greek. It literally means, if you were to translate the two words together, love of stranger. But practically, hospitality is kindness in welcoming a stranger. This idea would have been especially important in the ancient world. Christians traveling across the ancient world, they, they couldn't just find a Motel 6 or a Super 8 or a Holiday Inn as they were traveling. That didn't exist, obviously. So they were very often, as they were traveling, they were dependent on other Christians welcoming them into their own homes. That's something we, since, since I've been here, I know we've done this on more than one occasion since I've been here, where uh, a group is coming through, and maybe it's a Christian youth group or some other type of group that, and we've, we've asked people if they had room, and I know many of you have actually hosted people in your homes under similar circumstances. That, that's kind of what Paul's getting at here, this idea of hospitality. But it got me to thinking, you know, as this week about how might we be more intentional in doing that? And I thought about what about, what about a young single woman who's pregnant? She wants to keep the baby, but she's feeling some pressure from people at home. Like, you can't stay here. You, we're, I'm going to kick you out of the home if you try to keep the baby. Could we 
hospi- you know, would, would hospitality potentially say, listen, I've got an extra room in my house. You can come and you can stay with me until you have the baby and maybe a few months after you have the baby until you can get on your feet. You can stay with me. Or maybe hospitality would look like you know, a missionary couple who's serving on the field right now. They're coming back to the United States for three months or six months or whatever, and they need a place to stay. And you, Well, you think, again, I, I, I've got an extra room. I've got an extra bathroom in my house, and we could set that place apart, and they could stay with us while they're serving here. We could be, you'd be as creative as you want to be, but you get this idea that hospitality is a way to express genuine Christian love. Number 12, we're to bless our enemies. Bless your enemies. Almost all of the previous 11 points have dealt with our relationship with other Christians, with one another. This point, however, as well as some that will follow, uh, show us that we can express genuine Christian love as well to people who are non-Christians. And so verse 14 reads, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. For emphasis, Paul twice tells us to bless those who persecute us now that sounds an awful lot like what jesus had to say on the sermon on the mount Uh, i won't turn there right now but to paraphrase it jesus says that we're to to love our enemies we're to we're to love them we're not just to love those who love us back even the pagans do that but we're to love our enemies and so if you're a political junkie think about someone who represents a different political color than you do how do you respond to their tweets or their appearances on a news program? Do you consider yourself deep blue, deep uh, red, rather? Are you praying for President Biden right now? Or if you consider yourself deep blue, are you or were you praying regularly for President Trump? And, and not just our prayers, friends. Do we genuinely want to see our enemies prosper? Do you pray for the salvation of those people that just, ugh, you know, right? Do you, do you pray for their salvation? Do you pray for their eyes to be open to see the truth? And if they genuinely do get saved, would you rejoice over that? We can show genuine Christian love by blessing our enemies. But again, we can't do that in our own strength. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to help us do that. Point number 13. Empathize with others. This is verse 15. Point 13, but out of verse 15. Empathize with others. Paul tells us to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. And again, he's largely focusing here, I believe, on the Christian community. And I wonder, as I was reading that, I wonder, which one do you think is easier to do? Is it easier to rejoice with those who rejoice? Or is it easier to weep with those who weep? One of, our, uh, one of the church fathers, a golden-tongued preacher named Chrysostom, made a compelling point that it's harder to rejoice with those who rejoice. You know, when somebody tells you that, you know, they just lost their job or they just lost a family member or whatever, it's pretty, it's pretty easy to, to weep. Oh, just, ah, oh, man, I'm sorry to hear that. And, to, you know, to feel genuine care and concern. But when your best friend tells you that she just got engaged and you're not even dating anybody right now, it might be pretty easy to feel a bit envious. You're like, well, when, when is my person going to come along? Or when your neighbor buys a nice new car, that you know you can't afford that car. You might be all smiles on the outside, but inside you're, I wish I had that car. But we need to learn, what Paul's telling us here, we need to learn to feel empathy. Empathy is the ability to feel somebody else's feelings, to know where they're coming from. 
So let me, get, let me give you a concrete example of what that might look in our present time. Suppose you're a member of one ethnic group and you're having a conversation with a person from another ethnic group. Now, some of your life's experiences will be shared, but many of your life's experiences won't be shared. In some cases, you will come from such radically different perspectives that you may not even agree with one another on those experiences. And that's where empathy comes in. Empathy says, I want to genuinely hear what this other person is feeling. And in as much as I can, I want to put myself in his or her shoes. I want to genuinely understand them to try to feel what they're feeling. And beloved, this cuts both ways, by the way. It cuts both ways across racial and ethnic lines. We need to do a good job. We need to do, as Christians, we need to do a better job with empathy. But I also want to say this, and I think this is very important. I've, give, I've been given a lot of thought to this over the last couple of years. And in my reasoned judgment, and I'm not saying I'm the end-all, be-all of judgment here, but just in my own judgment, I believe that those of us who, are of, who have been a part of what society calls the majority culture for all of our lives, we need to do a better job of listening to the pain and hurt that many of our African-American brothers and sisters have gone through. We need to do a better job simply of expressing Christian empathy to hear them because that's a way to show genuine Christian love. Point number 14. We pursue harmony. Previous point leads naturally into this point. Verse 16, Paul says, live in harmony with one another. Or the New American Standard, if you read from that, says, be of the same mind toward one another. Paul probably has in mind here some ethnic tensions that existed in his day between Jews and Gentiles. Now, I don't know about you, I don't have any ethnic tensions between Jews and Gentiles in my own life. But we certainly live in a culture that is experiencing ethnic tension. And so it starts with genuine Christian empathy. That's the final point. It starts with trying to feel and understand what our brother or sister is feeling. But it goes beyond just the feelings. It goes to our minds. That's why the New American Standard says be of the same mind. We set our minds on the same thing. I read a very good book last year. It's called uh, Beyond Racial Gridlock. Subtitled Embracing Mutual Responsibility. It's written by an African-American guy named George Yancey. It's one of my featured books on the hallway back here. You can see a little picture of it and get some ideas. Um, it's a very good book. Even-handed. doesn't settle for something like simple. Well, this is the problem. It's just a simple problem. It's a, it's a very nuanced, good book on the topic. But so on this topic of being of the same mind, can we at least agree that there is a racial problem in our country? And as Christians, can we at least agree that that problem isn't just in society at large, but that problem has also invaded the church? I mean, can we, can we start there? Can we be of the same mind there? Now, we might have different ideas about how do we solve that problem, okay? I'm, I'm, not, I'm not up here saying that there was just a simple solution to this. No, no, this is a complex solution. But can we start by being of the same mind that there is a problem? Because I believe this, and I believe this strongly, that so long as there remains this strong division, even within the Christian church, the Christian church will continue to be marginalized in our society. Until we, as Christians, can live out the commands of our Lord and Savior without regard to race or ethnicity, the watching world is just going to say, no, thank you, I don't want a part of that. So we need to pursue harmony. Number 15, don't be proud. Verse 16, don't be haughty. Do not be haughty 
but associate with the lowly. Haughty, of course, is just a synonym for pride. The idea here in their text is similar to James 2. In James 2, the rich man comes into the worship service and immediately they're like, hey man, get this guy the best chair in the house. Let him, let him sit right here. Um, and then a poor man comes in and they say, hey, yeah, you can, you can just sit, sit over there at somebody's feet. That's where you can sit. Now, the idea, of course, they're thinking, man, if this rich guy, if he joins the church, man, we can build our new building. We can do this. We can do that. You know, just, let's try to pamper him up. And James, of course, chastises his believers for this type of behavior. But that's what Paul is saying here in this verse. That we don't need to be proud about who we're associating with. That we associate only with those people that we think will ultimately going to benefit us. Jesus, by the way, he also addressed this point in Luke 14. He tells us not to invite to, the, to a dinner party only those people who are rich and they're going to be able to return the favor. But we invite poor people who don't have the means to return that favor. What Paul is saying is don't be proud about who you hang around with. You know, those people who name drop. You know, last week I was with Beyonce and this week I was with this. Don't, don't be proud about that. Hang out with people only God knows their name. Associate with the lowly. Verse six, uh, point number 16. I've never done a sermon with this many points, so I'm saying like verse 16, but this is point number 16. But we're getting there. We're like over three quarters of the way done. Uh, don't be arrogant. Verse 16, Paul says, never be wise in your own sight. Again, this is closely related to the previous point. I don't have much to add here. Uh, the person who is wise in his own sight is an arrogant individual. And Paul tells us, now he's not telling us, by the way, it's, it's not arrogant to be wise. So if you're a wise person, praise God for that. He's not saying it's arrogant to be wise. He's saying it's arrogant to presume yourself to be wise. All right? You, you see the difference there? And this type of arrogance, listen, it's the stench of death. Nobody likes arrogance in an individual because arrogance doesn't express genuine Christian love in any way at all. So sum it up, don't be arrogant. Point number 17. Take the high ground. It's verse 17. Point 17, verse 17. This point, again, is probably relating to how we relate to unbelievers. In verse 17, repay no no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. You know, it's, it's human nature to, to strike back after you've been struck. That's just human nature to want to do that. Um, I used to be an assistant principal in an elementary school. And let me just, let me tell you what happens in elementary school. So you get in a little fight on the playground. Uh, they get sent to the principal's office, to, to my office. So they're sent there and, and you say, what happened? And the very first things you're going to hear are what? What are you going to hear? Yeah, I just, he started it. He hit me first. That's why I've titled this point, Take the High Ground. Take the High Ground. Don't repay evil for evil. But take some time to think about what might be, what, might, what an honorable response might look like. So, so suppose somebody lashes out on social media, Twitter or some other. What do you do? Well, I tell you what not to do. Don't take the bait, okay? Just don't take the bait. So you're not going to win somebody to your side in 280 characters or less. You're just not, that's not going to happen. And so what do most people do then? They, well, if you said something nasty about me, then guess what? I'm going to say something nasty about you. And I want to look at it and say, what are you, in first grade or something? Really? Just, just stop. Don't take the bait. Don't reply to evil with more evil of your own. Sit down. Don't, don't sink down to their level. Rather, give some serious thought to how you might answer honorably. 
Or here's a, here's a crazy idea. Just don't answer at all when somebody says something ugly, right? Take the high ground. Number eight, 18, excuse me, 18. Pursue peace. I've called this point pursue peace because sometimes it's beyond our ability to have peace. That's why Paul says here, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably at all. Hopefully, I mean, we've all lived long enough in this world that we recognize that I can't actually change another individual. The only person I have control over is me. And so there there are times in my life when I simply or we won't simply, we won't be able to have peace with, with another person. You know, maybe, maybe it's something we said. We said something insensitive to a, a person weeks, months, maybe even years ago. And in the meantime, we've tried multiple, multiple times to apologize to that individual, but that individual's not having it. Not, not going to accept the apology. Well, again, you, you can't make that individual forgive you. It's actually quite impossible to do. You can seek reconciliation. You can seek that to happen. And so inasmuch as it's up to you, you want to do your part, I want to do my part to pursue peace. So therefore, you know, before the unrest or before the war happens, so to speak, I'm not going to say intentionally inflammatory things to, to, to wreck a relationship because I want to have peace with others. And when a relationship has been wounded, I'm going to seek reconciliation. I may not be able to foster that reconciliation, but I'm going to look for it. And so we show genuine Christian love when we're living at peace with one another. Number 19. Resist the urge to play God. I think we fall into this far too often. This is verses 19 to 20. Paul tells us here, I'm paraphrasing, he says, Though we're not to avenge ourselves, rather we need to leave room for the wrath of God to operate. So, I don't, I don't know, maybe it comes as a surprise to you that we like to play God sometimes. You know, someone does us wrong, like verse 17, and we're going we're to repay evil with some evil of our own. But Paul tells us, rather, we need to leave room for the wrath of God. In other words, as Christians, we believe in ultimate justice. And we also believe that we are not the ones who will ultimately deal out that ultimate justice. So when we die, we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of God and we're all going to give an account of our lives to God. That's going to happen for all of us. And if, if we haven't turned from our sin and turned in faith to Jesus as Lord, we are going to personally experience the wrath of God. And so if you're listening to this message today or online and you've never turned from your sin to trust in Jesus, then I beg you today. I beg you to do that today. Before it's too late to turn to Jesus. Because if you fail to turn to Jesus and you die in that condition, you will experience the full wrath of God against your sin and it won't be pleasant. And so as a Christian, I believe that with all of my heart. And so I have no need then to avenge myself. I have no need to do that. God will take care of it in His own time. I don't need to worry about it. Rather, Paul says in verse 20, if my enemy is hungry, give him some food. If he's thirsty, give him some drink. For in my doing good for him, Paul says, this is kind of an interesting phrase, he says, I will heap burning coals on his head. Now maybe you've read that before and you thought, what, what's he up, what does that mean? I heap burning coals. 
uh, Augustine, one of our church fathers, way back in the 4th and 5th centuries, he taught that these burning coals meant that our enemies were going to experience this burning shame or remorse that, you know, man, the Christian, he treated me well, and look what I did. I'm, I'm, I feel shameful that I treated him that way. That uh, sounds nice. I don't think that's what he means here. Because when the Old Testament writers use this metaphor, the metaphor of burning coals being heaped on one's head, it's always used negatively. And it generally has to do with God's judgment. And so Paul's point here is the same as it was back up in verse 19, that God will ultimately judge. Therefore, I can continue doing good. I can continue showing Christian love because God is ultimately going to judge. And so I don't need to play God. He can take care of that. I just need to play Brian and let God be God. Point number 20. Be known by your good works. This point, again, is very similar. So this last paragraph has got a lot of repetition in it, and I think repetition for own good. It's very similar to verse 17. Verse 17, we're told not to repay evil for evil, but we're to give thought to what is honorable. Here in verse 21, we're not to be overcome by evil, but we're to overcome evil by good. In other words, beloved, listen, we're to be known by our good works. That's how we're to be known. When somebody thinks about us, they say, yes, that individual, I know that person by their works. And so I'm going to close with, with a passage from Matthew's Gospel. This is again from his Sermon on the Mount. Um, but Matthew chapter 5, verses 12 through 16, if you're a note taker, says this. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. Here's Here's the key verse, verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, Lord, let our love be a genuine type of love, a genuine Christian love. Your word tells us so much about what that genuine Christian love looks like. And none of us, Myself, chief among us, none of us do that perfectly. We all have much room to grow in this area of genuine Christian love. And so, Father, I pray that you would be about molding us and shaping us. Father, show us our blind spots. Show us areas that we need to work on, areas that we're not even aware that we need to work on. Perhaps use other brothers and sisters in the the body to encourage us point out to us where we can improve in this area and that we would love one another well. We'd express genuine Christian love one to another. There's so much, so much in this passage about our need, the things that we can do. And so help us, Father, to grow so that six months from now we might be a little more like Jesus than we are today with respect to genuine Christian love one for another. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thank you for taking time to listen to this sermon audio from Potomac Heights Baptist Church. Please feel free to make copies of this audio to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission from Potomac Heights Baptist Church.